Thank you, God, for healthy, happy kids. Thank you, God, for my dog. The dogs are getting a lot of, a lot of praise today, as they should. You might wonder, if you've read 2 Timothy this week, why I would choose to continue on with the books uh, with 2 Timothy on Thanksgiving Sunday. It's, it's perhaps the darkest of the New Testament books uh, in, in some ways. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of, of overt Thanksgiving in 2 Timothy. And um, there's two reasons why I decided to, to tackle 2 Timothy on Thanksgiving Sunday besides the fact that it's next in our, in our schedule. Um, one is because uh, of what we just uh, thought about before the songs. I, I'm beginning to feel like I don't have enough Sundays left. So I want to get through these books because there's things I want to say before I leave, uh, and I need more Sundays for that. So, so there's some of that. Uh, but but far, far more important is, is I see in 2 Timothy a chance for us to dig deeper on the topic of thanksgiving. Because despite the, uh, the, I don't know if dark's the right word, but very serious nature of the topics in 2 Timothy, uh, there, I don't think you could read it honestly and, and come away thinking that the author, the Apostle Paul, has anything less than a grateful heart. He doesn't come right out and say, praise God for this and thank God for this in, in this letter. But, but you, you sense, at least I, I think you do throughout it, that, that he's very hopeful, that he hasn't given up in any stretch of the imagination, no matter how, how dark the themes, themes and topics seem to be. And, and he comes at these, even these difficult, uh, challenging topics with gratefulness, with, with, a, with a generosity of spirit that leads, I think, to thanksgiving. And so um, I think that's, that's just honest, isn't it, for, for us? We... We, we know our lives are like that. The, the reason we have a Thanksgiving weekend is because we tend to get dark. We tend to focus on the negatives and we need a reminder now and then to remember that even though, yes, those things are real, the, the pain, the suffering, the difficulties in our lives are real, there still are things to be thankful for. And it, and it, it makes the hard things easier when we remember and remind one another to be grateful. And so as we enter 2 Timothy, I think any one of you could have read the book and come up with this statement. In 2 Timothy, God says, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. If you want to be a person who's in deep relationship with God, uh, in this letter that God has given to us to help us to know Him better, He's encouraging us to keep on, to endure, to fight the good fight. And let's just take a moment to read uh, the verses that from which that phrase come out of. If we read uh, from chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, it says this, But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but, all, but for all who eager look, eagerly look forward to his appearing. 
So just kind of to, to get into the mindset, the thoughts of, of Paul as he writes to his, his underling, his, the person he's mentoring here in, in ministry work, Timothy. Let's just analyze what we just read a little bit. He begins by saying, don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. And so we see a, a, a very um, stark honesty here. Life will have trials and suffering. Don't be afraid of it. It's, if, if you're not in that situation right now, a time comes when you will be. And if you have such a blessed life that you would never call a day suffering, the time will come when your friends begin to die and when you begin to suffer and die yourself. And there, there will be suffering. It's, it's unavoidable. Uh, and so, um, I mean, Paul's more specific here in what he's talking about, but it, it kind of in, uh, gives that framework. Don't be afraid of suffering. And he does say suffering for the Lord. And he's encouraging us throughout this letter to understand our suffering is something that we do for the Lord or in the Lord. And then he says, work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. And that's, that, that really relates to what it means to fight the good fight, doesn't it? He says, you're suffering, don't be afraid of it, but don't be overwhelmed with it. What are you going to do when you suffer? Well, he says, work at telling others the good news and carry out the ministry God has given you. So keep doing what you would be doing if you weren't suffering. Don't focus on the suffering, focus on the, on the good news to share with others, even if you're suffering or if you're not. And focus on the ministry that God has given you. Don't stop doing it. And, uh, and then he goes on uh, with the, the key phrase there, fight the good fight, finish the race, and um, don't compromise whether you're up or down, whether you're suffering or not. Uh, keep on uh, faith in faithfulness. And then he talks about the reward, and the reward he says for himself is very near because he's, he's near death, he believes, and it turns out historically that he was. But then he ends with this statement that he says, the prize is not just for me. It's not just me who's about to die that's going to get the prize that makes the endurance through suffering worthwhile, but it's also for those who eagerly look forward to his appearing. And, and he's saying, he's saying, if you, if you are the kind of person that remains faithful, that fights the good fight, that continues in the, in the work that God has given you, whether you're suffering or not, then, then that prize comes to you. Even though it's in the future, it visits your life in the here and now. And that's what I want to talk about. That's what Paul kind of points out to us. So, so let me just illustrate this. As I was reading that passage, I, I, I came to mind uh, a long time ago when I lived in Vancouver. Uh, it was... About this time of year, probably a little bit earlier, and it's salmon fishing season. And so some friends and I went, uh, we, we had a little car topper aluminum boat, uh, I think with a five horsepower motor, and we went down and threw it in the water under the Lionsgate Bridge in Vancouver. And that's where the salmon congregate before they disperse into all the different rivers for their spawning season. But if you know anything about the Lionsgate Bridge and, and Burrard Inlet there, you know that all the water that goes into Burrard Inlet when the tide goes up has to come out through that, under that little narrow bridge when the tide's going out. And the tide was going out. And, and it, it creates swells that are 20, 30 feet high under that bridge. They're, they're huge waves. And they just sit there. They're not moving. They just sit in one place, these huge waves. So we're in this little tiny three people, three grown men in a little... Uh, little aluminum boat that we brought there on the roof of a little like Nissan Micra or something. 
And, and uh, when you're at the top of the wave, you can see the world. You can see 50 other boats around you trying to catch the salmon, and they're all over the place, and you can see way down the inlet, and you can see way out to sea. You can see everything. But when you go down in the trough of the wave, you can't see a thing. 30-feet boats that are 20 feet away from you disappear. They're gone. You're just all by yourself with water all around you. Now, there's a lot of up and down. And uh, it can be quite unnerving. But you soon realize that the boat actually floats. And actually the small boat is safer on those waves than the big one. Because it doesn't matter which orientation the boat is. The wave's so big that the boat just interprets it as, as flat water. And you just go like this no matter what. So what do you do? Get on with the fishing. Whether you're on the top of the wave or down in the trough. Get on with the fishing. Ignore the waves. Just... Just carry on with what you, you're there to do. And, and that's kind of the picture that I get here with what, what Paul is teaching us here about, um, about suffering. He says, work at telling others the good news and carry out the ministry God has given you. It's going to go up and down. That's, where, that's the world we live in. That's the life we lead. It's going to happen. But don't let that influence. Just, just get on with it. Uh, in, in either case. I mean, it's going to change a little bit what you do probably, but, but just get on with it. And that's what it means to fight the good fight and finish the race. Uh, to not be derailed by, by the things that inevitably will come. So I want to broaden this out a little bit from Second Timothy because this is really uh, the message of God's word from beginning to end. We should be seeing this clearly now as we've been through most of the books. But we can just look at the story that I talked about last week for an example. You remember Joseph. We looked at it from the point of view of the other brothers last week. But I want to just for a moment think about Joseph's point of view in the story. Uh, he, he definitely had a lot of ups and downs, big waves in his life. And he, uh, he went from being the favored son to being sold into slavery. And he went from... Um, he, he went from, from being the slave to being the manager of the house and then went to be falsely accused of rape and then in prison to the manager, like just up and down and up and down and, and all kinds of different things in his life. And, um, and what he never did, as far as we can tell, is he never stopped trusting. He never stopped believing and, and, and he interpreted it this way at the end. When he spoke to his brothers, you, my brothers, intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. How did he remain faithful through all those ups and downs of his life? Well, he remained faithful because he saw what was happening, whether it was currently fully realized or not as the work of God in his life and in the life of those around him. He continued on with the ministry God had given him, irregardless of the circumstance. And so, um, so that's a good example for us. I want to look at a psalm. We think about the psalms as, as uh, in fact, the name means a book of praise, and, and we think of it as a place that's full of thanksgiving. But when you really get into it, if you... If you uh, if you do a search for the word thanks or thanksgiving or thankfulness in the Psalms, you'll actually find very few Psalms that are characterized by thanks and thanksgiving. 
you'll find many psalms that have specific things, uh, incidents of thanksgiving in them. But they're, they're generally not characterized. Uh, they're, they're much more characterized by complaining and uh, arguing with God and, uh, and, and bearing out the, the difficulties of life in prayer. So this is a typical psalm. I picked Psalm 7 simply because it's short enough to read here. And, but, but there's many, many other examples we could have used. So let's, read, let's look at this psalm together, Psalm 7. I come to you for protection, O Lord my God. Save me from, from my persecutors. Rescue me. If you don't, they will maul me like a lion, tearing me to pieces with no one to rescue me. O Lord my God, if I have done wrong or am guilty of injustice, if I have betrayed a friend or plundered my enemy without cause, then let my enemies capture me. Let them trample me into the ground and drag my honor in the dust. Interlude or pause. Think about that for a moment. Do I deserve what I'm getting? Or is it unjust? Well, his answer, I think, in this prayer is, no, I, I don't deserve it. I, I didn't do the things that I'm being accused of and being attacked for. Verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. Gather the nations before you. Rule over them from on high. The Lord judges the nations. Declare me righteous, O Lord, for I am innocent, O Most High. End the evil of those who are wicked and defend the righteous. For you look deep into the mind and heart, O righteous God. God is my shield, saving me from those whose hearts are true and right. God is my honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his arrows. He will prepare his death, deadly weapons, and shoot his flaming arrows. The wicked conceive evil. They are pregnant with trouble and give birth to lies. They dig a deep pit to trap others then fall into it themselves. Would you characterize this as a psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving, a good one to read on Thanksgiving Day? It sounds exactly like that little boat in the waves, doesn't it? Up and down and up and down. I'm being attacked, God. Am I guilty? Do I deserve this? Arise, God. Are you sleeping? Come on, take care of this situation. Back and forth, back and forth. It's, it, it reads like real life. It reads like our experience. It's an honest prayer. It's the way we all ought to pray. And it, it doesn't come to a conclusion that says these things I'm praying for have happened. And then it ends like this. The trouble they make for me backfires on them. The violence they plan falls on their own heads. I will thank the Lord because he is just. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. And, and, and the, the thanksgiving just pops in without a proper context, without a proper lead up. It, it's not like the problems have been resolved. But yet, as, uh, as the psalmist enters into honest prayer with God about the struggles and suffering of life, God visits him with a thankful heart. It just pops in there, unexpectedly, out of context. And that's what it's like when we live a life of faith. 
That's what Paul means when he, when he writes at the end of that passage we just read. And the prize is not just for me, the one who's about to die and, and enter heaven, but, but also for those who eagerly look forward to his appearing. The prize visits us as we eagerly wait for it. It, it comes into our lives unexpectedly. Little, it's like a little, a little window in heaven opens up and a little light shines in in the middle of the suffering and suddenly our hearts are filled and overcome with thanksgiving. Then sometimes that window shuts up again and we're back where we were. Sometimes, often, we can hang on to a little bit of that and it helps us through the suffering. The Psalms are honest prayers, but they frequently see praise and thanksgiving pop in without explanation. It's like the psalmist is writing the prayer, complaining, writing his strongest possible complaint against the sufferings in his life. And then almost all on its own, his pen just starts saying, thank you, God. I'm filled with praise. And then many of them, this one just ends there, but many of them then go right back to the complaining in the next verse. How do we understand that? I mean, you've all probably been guilted with this verse. You're complaining and someone says, be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will for you who belong in Christ Jesus. Has that happened to you? Has your wife or husband thrown 1 Thessalonians 5.18 in your face? Stop complaining. This is what God says. What's an abuse of that verse? But I think what what Paul is talking about in this verse, give thanks in all circumstances, is exactly what we just read in Psalm 7. Yeah, it's dire. Yeah, there's suffering. Yes, God hasn't answered and solved the picture yet. But allow that thanksgiving to just reach into that place and experience even that place, the trough in the bottom when the waves are high around, as a place where you can give thanks. Allow a little bit of heaven in even then. How do we do that? And that's why we're looking at at 2 Timothy today. Fight the good fight is probably a good summary statement. Let's think about um, let's think about the content of 2 Timothy. I'm not going to read it all, of course. We're almost out of time, but I just want to uh, remind you what's in there. It begins with Paul's concern for Timothy. So Timothy is obviously discouraged. Uh, Nero is emperor, severe persecution, um, uh, difficulties in the church that he's shepherding. And so Paul, you know, probably you could summarize what he says to Timothy is be bold. Despite the persecution, despite the, the struggles in the church, be bold. Teach boldly, lead boldly. Uh, don't lose heart. Don't become timid. And then Paul describes his own situation. It's uh, what we just read a little bit of. Um, the end is near. Either I'm going to die of hypothermia or sickness here in this prison or I'm going to be executed. It's cold. Everyone has deserted me. That's his situation. And then he goes into some instructions for Timothy. And the depressing thing about these instructions is that this, this letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, is a, a number of years after 1 Timothy. And if you compare the two, it seems like the church Timothy is pastoring is still struggling with the same issues. You'd think they'd have overcome them by now. You'd think they'd have got somewhere. Have you ever feel, ever feel like that in, in ministry and church? Why are we still struggling with the things we struggled with before? 
maybe in your own personal life. And so he gives some instructions about that. And then he gives some warnings about the last days. When things get bad, we tend to think it's the end. And, uh, and sometimes we use that as an excuse to say, well, it's okay if we just kind of relax a little bit. It doesn't matter, really matter if we continue to live holy because these are, these are terrible times, so it's justified. Uh, it's, 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 uh, there, we have a good excuse. It's so hard that, that you know, we need a little, uh, we can loosen up on our, on our faithfulness a little bit. He says, don't do that. And then he gives a final charge and some requests. Please bring me my warm cloak and the parchments and, and uh, stuff like that. So there's not a lot of upbeat in here. But he, rem- he keeps a positive outlook. Just like Joseph, just like the psalm. Uh, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And, and essentially what we, we understand him to be saying there is, is it's been hard, but it's been worth it. It's been the best life I could have had. He's still positive about it, even though he's about to die from his sufferings for the Lord. And so, so we see that gratefulness, though it's not spe- explicitly uh, expressed in this letter. It's still the spirit that stands behind it. And I want to close on a little uh, thing that Paul puts in there that I think explains to us how he can be like that. How he can remain grateful in a very difficult, the most difficult place he's been in all his life. Right at the end. And, and he, he, he begins it like this. Here is a trustworthy saying. So these aren't his words. He's, re, he's, he's recording something else here. And we don't know what the trustworthy saying is. Uh, uh, maybe it was something that when Paul and Timothy were traveling in their missionary journeys, maybe this is a little verse that they would repeat to each other to encourage one another. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a song that the churches would sing. Maybe it's a hymn that everybody knew. Uh, we have ones like that that you can go to any church and they're so popular that everybody knows the song. Not exactly sure what it is, but, but it's clear that Timothy knows it, it's clear that Paul knows it, and it's something they share and that's meaningful. He doesn't have to explain it, he just has to write it out and Timothy knows everything he's talking about. So let's take a look at that because I think this is where the ability to be grateful in the midst of suffering comes from. It begins like this, We who died with him will also live with him. You know, sometimes we think about our, uh, our, this idea of dying in Christ or dying with, with Christ and being raised again in, in his resurrection as something that's, that's future tense, something that's in the spiritual realm and we'll kind of understand and come into its real experience of it in the, in the future, maybe after our deaths or after the Lord returns. But, but here it's written in past tense. We died with him. It's already happened. And so to think about that, we could, we could pretend for a moment that this is a funeral service and the casket is right here. And, and we could look at the, at the person in the casket and we could ask ourselves, what is this person tempted with today? What passions of the world that are contrary to Christ are they struggling with right now? And the answer, obviously, is none of it. They're dead. The, the passions, the concerns, the sufferings, the ups and downs, the temptations of this world are not affecting this person. They're dead. That's gone. That's behind them. And he's saying here, when we put our faith in Christ, we died with him. And so that's in the past. And now we live with him. So we live towards his passions and his priorities and the things that not tempt us towards evil, but tempt us towards godliness. 
And a good illustration of that, that that comes to us throughout the scriptures is the illustration of a marriage. Let's take the casket out and bring in the bride and her father and the groom standing up here beside me. And I ask, who gives this woman away to be joined to this man? And that ceremony runs like that because we understand and we are meant to understand that what's happening in that moment is a kind of a death. That woman is going to take on a new name. That woman is going to start a new family. And the temptations and the, and the things and the traditions of that old family are going to be left behind. And this new couple is going to develop a new tradition, a new family, a new uh, little culture of their own. And so from that day on, they're going to live towards the new and leave behind the old. And that's the illustration that comes to us throughout scriptures of what it means to be God's people. We die to this world, our old home. And we're married to the new. And we live towards that reality in a new and different way. He goes on. If we endure we will also reign with him. How many of you would uh, describe your last week as enduring? Did you endure? I hope some of you, nope, that wasn't my week, it was great, but, but I know you well enough that for many of us, it, it was an endurance. Enduring is quite different from words like being crushed or defeated or even suffering. It comes from the word endurance, which is a positive attribute, a characteristic we would all seek to have to be people who endure. And uh, a good illustration of that, I know I've used this one before, so I won't belabor it, but just just imagine, again, we're going to use the center aisle here. Imagine I finish preaching in a moment, and I walk down the aisle, and I get halfway down, and my heart rate's through the roof. My legs are just absolutely aching and cramped. And I just sit down beside one of you and say, I can't make it down the aisle. I've just got to take a rest here. What would you do? You'd probably throw me in a car and get me to the hospital. Now let's imagine that we're climbing a mountain. We've already done 2,000 feet of elevation. And it's another 200 to the peak. And my heart rates up and my legs are just absolutely painful and I've got a cramp in the back of my calf and I sit down a rock and say, just give me a minute to catch my breath. What would you do? The peak's right there. Get your breath back. Keep going. We can make it. Exactly the same physical experience. And in one situation, I experience it as, as not suffering at all, but as a, a, a legitimate and expected uh, complication or, or part of the process of reaching the goal. Because when I get up there, I'll be able to see Mount Robson in the distance over there and the prairies way over there and the little lake with the glacier falling into it over there and it'll be worth it. And so I endure the suffering and hardly notice it. Exactly the same physical feelings and symptoms would be very different. And that's what it means to endure. Because the prize is ahead. And we get tastes of it along the way. You get really good views along the way before you get to the top of the mountain. You know how good it's going to be, so you keep going. Endure. If we endure, we will reign with him. And then it gets a little serious, doesn't it? If we disown him, 
He will also disown us. So there's another powerful motivation to endure, isn't it? If we disown him, if we stop enduring, God will remain faithful to his character. And and he will disown us. The scriptures say if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, then we are saved. And and so and so we, we can't go down that road. Endurance, even when it's difficult, is worth it, because the alternative is very serious. And this is the part. I, I've been anticipating this moment since I first stood up here this morning. It's so beautiful. I can I can I get excited. I haven't even read the words yet. Let's read it together. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. If we are faithless, he will be faithful and we'll still get there. If sometimes when it gets hard and we falter and we doubt, or we fall to temptation, or we turn our eyes away from Christ and, and do things we know are not right, if we're, if we're faithless, He will be faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. I don't know if you think much about the limitations of God, but here's one of them. He cannot be unfaithful. It's not possible. So I want to illustrate that. I've tried to illustrate everything, and and, um, and I want to, I have here a little bottle of unfaithfulness, faithlessness. Now I know you think it's sriracha sauce, but, but it's unfaithfulness. So if we didn't all have our masks on and, and sitting social distance, I might ask for a volunteer. But if I asked you to come up here and stick out your tongue so I could put a few drops on your tongue, how many would volunteer? probably have one or two that that would be okay with, uh, but for most of us, that's, that, that's not really an option unless we're tied down. I'm going to probably drop something here, but let's see. So... If I was to dilute that drop just a little bit, how many would be okay with that? Two drops of sriracha sauce and a big spoon of spaghetti. Yeah, I'd eat that. But let's just say I take those two drops and put them in the pot and stir it up. How many would eat that? Two drops in a little pot of spaghetti. Most of you are kind of nodding your heads or wondering why you're getting hungry right now. But um, how far has God removed your sins? Go ahead, you know the verse. As far as the east is from the west. How big is his love? As big as the oceans. So let's, I mean... Let's take that unfaithfulness that you're capable of. It seems really big in your life. It seems really big to your friends and your family. But if we put it into God's faithfulness, it's like one drop in the Pacific Ocean. He cannot be faithless. 
and his faithfulness. We are in Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. We are surrounded by his love. We are surrounded by his faithfulness. And yes, sometimes we are faithless. But as Paul writes here, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. This is what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1. For the Spirit of God gave us, or sorry, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, for he or for me his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to be holy and to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. That's what it means to be in Christ Jesus. His righteousness, his faithfulness is put on our account and we enter into it like a drop of Sirachi in the Pacific Ocean. It doesn't make a difference. He is faithful even if we are faithless. That's different than disowning. That's a different thing. But why would we endure in suffering? Why would we continue? Why would we have little episodes of of gratitude and, and bursts of thanksgiving in the midst of our difficult lives? It's because He is faithful. Because we live, even in our sufferings, even in our enduring, we are inside the greatness of His love and His faithfulness. Doesn't mean the legs don't hurt. Doesn't mean the tears don't flow. But it means even when they do, we can say, thank you, God. Because we anticipate a prize, and that prize visits us time and again as we bring our prayers and our petitions before God.